and welcome back to our Back to Fundamentals podcast series. Today, we're going to be focusing on global oil supplies. Even though all the focus uh, right now is on global oil demand and whether it's going to recover back to 100 million barrels per day uh, because of the uh, COVID uh, crisis that we are currently facing, it is really global supplies that have reached, or the, it's global supplies that have really changed. And our fear is that it is going to be supplies that lags demand when demand does recover, creating a huge potential spike in oil prices down the line, which will, of course, have bigger implications for the global economy. So today, joining me in this podcast is our head of upstream, Virendra Chauhan, and our head of geopolitics, Richard Bronze, who is, of course, also our resident expert on OPEC mats. Welcome to both of you. Uh, Rich, if I could start with you, because right now all the focus is on OPEC. And we have seen quite a big turnaround this year. We've had record high production from them, and we've now got record low production in some ways from them. But the real kind of standout point has been even Iraq, I mean, this is, I, I can't believe I'm saying this myself, even Iraq is starting to comply. Even the likes of Nigeria are trying to comply. What has really happened to OPEC? It's a good question. And certainly, you know, we've had a roller coaster couple of months and, and the members of OPEC will have felt um, the effects of that. So as you say, you know, the, the breakdown of the previous OPEC plus deal, then you had Saudi Arabia, other GCC countries pumping at huge levels in April, just as demand was collapsing, just as prices really dropped to their lows, sending a very clear signal to the rest of OPEC that, you know, this is what we can do. This is what we're willing to do if people don't abide by the agreements we strike. Uh, you know, it's no longer in the meeting in Vienna. It's now on, on video conferences, like everything. But they're, they're saying you have to sign. If you sign up to something, you have to deliver on it. We got this new deal through uh, starting in May, but also running for two years, you know, with these three phases that will gradually bring supply back. So the Saudis in particular didn't want to be going and re-litigating, renegotiating every couple of months. They wanted a big framework. Um, and I think that got ignored by the market at first because the assumption was here what we're going to really see is the GCC, uh, a few others really doing the work of uh, complying and cutting and the usual cheaters, the usual laggards not really pulling their weight. And May, uh, straight away May showed good numbers, uh, but certainly it was led by the GCC. And what happened very quickly was, um, you know, the foot was put down. I think the first thing to note is Russia, uh, very high compliance. You know, it didn't really have any option because it's European markets, the refineries there, just many of them were offline or running at very low rates. So it had to comply. But it has got on board with putting pressure on the countries that fell behind. So this isn't just within OPEC. You've also got Kazakhstan in the spotlight. You've got other non-OPEC countries. And they've all been forced to come back with plans for how do you improve compliance? How are you going to catch up for the cuts you failed to make over May, maybe over June? And I don't think that's going to mean we get you know, 100% perfect compliance across the board. And I do think as we get later in the year into next year, things will get harder again. But we're seeing a, uh, you know, a real step change in compliance and in the credibility of OPEC and OPEC Plus. And this is on uh, cuts that are an order of magnitude larger than anything this group has tried to do 
um, you know, previously. So, so that's very impressive, but it takes a huge chunk of supply out of the market and it takes more out than anyone had really anticipated, even in April when this agreement was announced. No, and I completely agree. I mean, just talking to uh, people in the industry, I think everybody had said it would be more like, you know, 60, 70 percent compliance. Who would have thought Iraq would cut by a million barrels per day? Who would have thought Russia would cut by two million barrels per day? I mean, Russia's July export uh, that were released. um, It's just unbelievable uh, how low the Ural's program is. It's only 27 cargoes for July. And it just shows you how big compliance is as a topic um, within OPEC plus. And yeah, I mean, that's kind of single-handedly really tightened up the sour crude market, uh, which is pretty remarkable. The the one thing I was going to uh, add there uh, when you talked about Vienna is, you know, I'm quite glad we've not had to go there, given how hot it has been this year again in Europe. And I I remember from last year. But I will also say, uh, having joined some of these uh, JTC meetings virtually, uh, the amount of... uh, uh, technical prowess it's taking to get these meetings together with, with everybody's like, oh, can you hear me? Oh, you're still on mute. Um, I think we are going to reconvene in Vienna pretty soon, as soon as you know, international travel does, uh, does pick back up again. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident of that. Um, well, and and yeah. also, you know, do, do their little bit for, for jet fuel demand, which we know is going gonna, is gonna to struggle for a long time. So exactly. get planes flying in. And, and, and the food and beverage industry as well. So yes, I, I think that's absolutely going to be the case. Um, but V, if I can bring you in over here, uh, the other focus, the f- obviously the first focus has really been on OPEC, but the other focus has been on North America. Um, US production in particular, it's come off very sharply. We know that uh, they've voluntarily shut in production and by voluntarily, it's not because uh, they're playing ball to kind of OPEC plus cuts. It's more about prices force them to do that. Uh, Prices, I mean, WTI went to minus 37. We also had Canada shut in production. But now you are hearing more and more companies talk about bringing back production. So you've almost got um, them going in opposite directions. So OPEC, as Rich mentioned, they continue to comply. If anything, their compliance is improving. Arguably, US is going the other way. Um, How does that play out? Yeah, when we think about um, US shell, I think it's two very distinct periods, or three actually, if you were. If we take, say, 2010 to 2020, it's been all about relentless production growth on average around a million barrels per day, give or take. Clearly, the next few years are going to be quite painful as far as US production is concerned. We're forecasting declines of somewhere 1.2 million barrels per day for this year, and then 0.7 million barrels per day for next year. Now, you could argue that these are COVID-induced anomalies, and then as soon as prices allow, we're going to go straight back into that 1 million barrels per day of year-on-year growth going forward. However, over the medium term, things look very, very different. We do think that the damage that's been done, not just by one price correction, so that was the 2014 to 2016 downturn, but now again, so twice in the space of five years, is going to have more lasting and permanent damage. And this is at a time we just released our medium term outlook, and that showed very much Richard and yourself, you'll always talk about the call on OPEC, but what I think we're now going to need over the medium term is a call on shale. And when I look at that call on shale, when I look at the growth, the average growth rate between 2023 to 2025, we're only going to get 0.2 million barrels per day of year-on-year growth on average. So it's not a question of OPEC or shale, it's more a question of 
can shale deliver the barrels which will be required to keep the market in balance over the medium term? And I would argue probably the answer is no, given the kind of uh, hole that we being that is being created right now um, from the lack of investment just just everywhere else uh, as well. Yeah, I mean, um, I think uh, the other thing that shale did was re- very much. I mean, it was total non-OPEC supply growth is equal to U.S. supply growth, and of course there were years where that was quick that was close i most other countries in the world were either flatlining or we were seeing slight growth or slight declines now that we're seeing heavy declines from the us then even those slight declines from the rest of the world will become more apparent so very very strong growth centers brazil canada all of these countries even russia to a certain extent you touched upon that um they're going to it's going to be an uphill challenge for all of these countries so it's going to be an interesting time for the supply side for sure and I think this is something we're going to see in OPEC as well, because it's, you know, I find it very uh, bizarre when people always associate decline rates with non-OPEC. I mean, OPEC isn't immune to decline rates, right? The, if, you, if you look at uh, every country, really, it, a lot of them have very mature basins. And the kind of well shut-ins required, again, I, I kind of, I'm not picking on Iraq over here, but it is fascinating given the high water cuts that some of the fields have to reduce production by a million barrels per day uh, and then to be able to bring it back online. Now, again, like Rich, you said that we're not saying they're going to cut by a million, but even if it's like 700,000 barrels per day, I think there are some challenges for the medium term, which I at least find... Uh, when I'm talking to people that we aren't appreciating as an industry, it's very much like, oh, this is a short term thing and we'll just go back to the normal. Completely. And, you know, for me, you need OPEC countries in particular to to maintain production or, or especially if they're aiming to grow production. They need two things. They need spending and they need stability. Uh, be that political stability, be that kind of legal and regulatory stability. Um, but what we're seeing, I think, is even within OPEC, a much smaller pool of countries uh, that are likely to be able to deliver both of those elements. You know, certainly the GCC are still putting money into uh, expansion projects. The Saudis have several over the next few years, you know, Marjan, Berry, uh, Zuluf, all of which should deliver incremental supplies. But most of that is just about maintaining their, their peak capacity. It's not about pushing from 12 and a half million is their claimed peak at the moment to 15 million. Um, and, and they've also delayed some of those projects again to like 2024 by the looks of it. Exactly. So they're, so they're going to be, uh, for much of the next five years, they're going to be using their existing capacity, which yes, they proved um, back in April with, with a surge can go um, to, you know, 11 and a half to 12, uh, at least briefly. But using that and running that at high levels, you know, if we think they're going to have to go back above 10 and then higher to fill the gap in the market, there's going to be very limited spare capacity left in the one place that it was um, really reliably being held by. Um, Then rest of the GCC, yes, they can deliver, I think, some incremental supplies. um, But outside, getting that combination of spending and stability looks much, much harder um, and a lot of the spending is needed and will be needed just to, as you mentioned, you know, offset decline rates and particularly to bring back production that is being shut in or has been forced offline, uh, at least temporarily now, because that's not an easy technical process for older fields or for more complex 
geologies and and a lot of OPEC production, a growing share of it, is more complex. It's not all straightforward onshore conventional assets. And I think this is the fascinating thing because I was doing some calculations yesterday about spare capacity because one of the pushbacks um, we hear a lot right now is that, oh, but how can oil prices go up because there's so much spare capacity in the market? Yes, technically, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, between OPEC and non-OPEC, we've probably got about 12 million barrels per day of spare capacity. But that 12 is there because of where prices are and because of where demand is. Um, If as and when prices do recover in the short term, we believe you need at least 50 to $60 to get OPEC plus to start bringing production back. Same for the US. You need prices, and and V, you mentioned this as well. I mean, that sector has been ravaged. So you need prices to go up and sustain, uh, say, around $45, $50 WTI for a bit before capital comes back. And by capital coming back, we're definitely not talking about pre-COVID levels, but, you know, just just some capital coming back. Um, But equally, demand is also uh, lower today by about, say, 10 million barrels per day versus uh, pre-COVID levels. So it it pretty much does match up um, in terms of the supply-demand balance going forward. I think the critical thing is, of that 12 million barrels per day, how much can actually come back to exactly what you both are talking about? That's the headline number. But when we start to reverse some of these processes, we might see some of these wells may never come back or might take a lot longer. And, and, and V, I know you've done a lot of work on this in terms of that, what we've called or what we've defined as a semi-permanent damage to reservoirs. But you know, do you see that as a real uh, challenge and potentially the key contributor to the price spike uh, in the kind of coming years? Yeah, um, absolutely. I think there's um, an interesting point to make there. So what we saw during the previous downturn was sustained investment from the OPEC producers, particularly the GCC guys. Um, and what the industry, both on the conventional side and the unconventional side, was was able to do was to kind of not see an activity decline on the scale of the CapEx decline. So I think from peak to trough between 2014 and 2016, spending was down by around 50%. But if you look at activity levels, i.e. what was actually going on at the wellhead in the fields, it only fell by 10%. Now, this took two forms. In, in the unconventional space, what you had was U.S. shale producers high grading to, to their best acreage, and therefore there was an efficiency gain to be had. For the OPEC guys, or not just OPEC, but for the conventional industry at large, what we had was a squeezing of the service sector. Um, now, both of those efficiency gains are gone. So en- any kind of spending reduction or activity reduction today will more quickly be reflected in your supply reductions. And that's, we've, we've started to see some of that. You may argue it's COVID induced, but if we take an OPEC country, for example, like Angola, we saw in May, rig counts fell to zero. We saw subsea vessel activity declining or fall into a complete halt. Now, Angolan production is um, currently on track to hit 16 year low this year, and it's going to continue falling over across 22 and 23. Um, now remember, so that's going to be somewhere around 1 million, 1.1 million barrels per day at the lows. Angola is a country which had long-term targets of hitting 2 million barrels per day. Ironically, it's going to be close to half of that. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's probably true for a lot of countries. I mean, I, 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 I laugh because Venezuela has come out and again talked about how they plan to hit two or three million barrels per day when um, their exports are barely 
I mean, six, five, six hundred thousand barrels per day right now. Um, so yeah, I think there's a big mismatch between aspiration and, and the, the reality of it, um, uh, for sure. But, but also, uh, V, to your point, I mean, I think you, you make a good point about even the OPEC country investments, um, it's just not going to be the same in the cycle. But even though, even so rather, I would say that if anybody is investing, despite the delays, it is the NOCs because right now, um, IOCs in this ESG world, and especially now with post-COVID, maybe COVID is just being used as an excuse mm. uh, to to guide the policy. Um, I can't see them investing in oil. Yeah, no, there's uh, a number of pressures which are kind of coming together. So for those of you that joined our workshop, Matt Parry, our head of long-term demand, was talking about the kind of trajectory of our demand curves. And he doesn't see um, demand peaking until late in the 2020s or early 2030s. So there's still clearly a long way to go, even in terms of growth as far as supply is concerned. But um, I think going forward, what we are going to see is up until now, it's been very much uh, um, a demand-constrained world. But going forward, I think what's going to be the constraining factor is going to be supply. Now, as far as international oil companies are concerned, they've, they've got a number of things on their hands, right? If I mean, earlier this week or uh, last week, we had BP take a write-down on its Q2 earnings of around 17 or $18 um, billion, and that's because they brought down their long-term price forecast from somewhere close to $70 per barrel down to 55 There's a number of things which um, – or forces which are acting – um, on them. Firstly, think about investment flows. Um, it's clearly being redirected towards, um, you know, renewables or non-fossil fuels. Think about government mandates. They're also moving in that direction. Think about consumer attitudes towards the climate. These are things that are out of control of the international oil companies. And so really, or realistically, it's all going to come back to the national oil companies to um, really drive the supply story going forward. And of course, that means that the significance of OPEC goes up over time. No, absolutely. And this is going to be fascinating. And, you know, I mean, I, I think in this world where governments have to focus on growth and reducing unemployment, it'll be intriguing to see how much money still flows into the renewable sector. But to your point, shareholders want them to focus on green energy and therefore they cannot be seen uh, to be investing in the likes of, say, Canadian oil sands, which I think is going to be very challenging to develop in this world of ESG. Um, and that kind of opens up this whole question about stranded assets, and maybe we just never develop certain assets, even though that's there. But it, contrary to BP's price forecast, precisely because of um, their actions, and not just them, it's, it's I'm just talking about IOCs in, in general, um, to your point, we are heading into a supply-constrained world where prices have to go up because demand is simply too inelastic. I mean, just to give um, everybody an example, at the, at the peak of the crisis in April, when the North, the bulk of the Northern Hemisphere was shut down, which is home to 90% of global manufacturing, global oil demand fell by less than 20%. That's how inelastic it is. And I think that has huge ramifications for the medium term because if the supply side is uh, moving away from oil far too quickly than demand is able to cope with. Um, but I think, I think it does mean, you know, in a few years time, you're probably going to get more production from OPEC uh, at a higher price. So I think that also has very important geopolitical implications, Rich, don't you think? I mean, maybe you get stability in the Middle East or is that wishful thinking? I mean, certainly, uh 
you know, the countries that rely on oil revenues um, need higher prices and will benefit from higher prices. It would help existing governments maintain their control. Now, you can debate whether that's good for stability or not. Um, certainly, when you look at, you know, U.S. sanctions policy, it's aimed at starving regimes the U.S. disagrees with of oil revenues. So, higher prices might make uh, that uh, you know, reverse that process. I think the other thing is it may also discourage these countries from policies that might reduce the dependence or move away. We've got with Saudi Arabia, the Vision 2030, this big ambition to shift the economy and make it less dependent on oil revenues. But ironically, that whole vision is going to be funded and underpinned by oil revenues and is actually driving the Saudi need for oil prices at higher levels than they are today. They can't, they need to spend oil money to wean their economy off oil. Um, and I think other countries are going to face that. And the higher oil prices are, the the more difficult it probably becomes to take those hard choices to explain to your population. Although, or unless, you know, where oil prices are at such levels that it's actually accelerating the demand shift away and is breaking that inelasticity you talked about um, by forcing consumers to alternatives faster than they might otherwise. But I think all of those are a longer trend, certainly in the medium term. Uh, better revenues and a bigger market share are going to be very much welcomed by by OPEC members, and they're going to feel like this proves um, that the group achieved its goals or it, you know, its deal did deliver results if it comes to pass. No, absolutely. And I know we're running out of time, but I can't let you go without asking you this one last thing since you mentioned it. It's sanctions. And, you know, how can we talk about global supplies without talking about, I guess, U.S. policy and particularly sanctions on Iran and Venezuela, two countries which with huge potential uh, in the medium term. Uh, but, but where do we see things heading? Uh, I know in our balances, we've had to bring back some Iranian production. That's not us making a call on uh, what's going to happen in the U.S. elections in November. It's more about the world needs that oil. Uh, but I think that is something that everybody is going to be very keen to hear in terms of how that evolves. Where, where do we stand on that? Yeah, so uh, I think we do see better prospects um, for some kind of diplomatic movement on Iran next year once you have got the US elections, either whether Trump gets reelected or Biden comes in. I think uh, Iran's likely to, to feel the need to do some kind of deal, and it's going to look at who the partner uh, across the table would be in the US. But that will be a slow process, and it'll be a gradual return. I think the benefit Iran might have is it's likely to have kept its fields in reasonably good condition. I think with Venezuela, uh, in contrast, the challenge is, however, and if you do get to a point where relations improve, whether it's a change of regime there or whether it's a, cha uh, you know, a change in US policy and an easing of sanctions, maybe on humanitarian grounds, I think Venezuela's oil industry needs a huge amount of investment and support to repair the damage and the mismanagement of recent years. So I think actually Venezuelan production would be much slower to return if you had some kind of political settlement and easing of sanction than is the case for Iran. Thank you so much. And again, both V and Rich, this has been really fascinating. I've enjoyed talking about global supplies and I'm pretty sure we will be back soon talking about different aspects of this um, in our next season because you know supplies will be evolving very, very quickly, especially if the oil price recovery continues at this pace. Some of the challenges might get easier uh, when we next meet. Uh, but for now, thank you very much. Thank you for listening and uh, we will be back next week.